The seventh Democratic presidential debate took place in Des Moines. Live from Drake University in Iowa. This is the CNN Democratic presidential debate. The day before the debate, there were reports that during a 2018 meeting, Bernie Sanders told Elizabeth Warren he didn't think a woman could beat President Donald Trump. The two sparred over it during that debate, and afterwards, Warren and Sanders had a moment everyone was talking about. I think you called me a liar on national TV. I think you called me a liar on national TV. Let's not do it right now. You want to have that discussion, we'll have that discussion. You called me a liar. You told me. All right, let's not do it now. I don't want to get For the last year, Sanders and Warren had vowed not to go after each other, but the truce was coming to an end. It was less than three weeks before the Iowa caucuses, and polling ahead of the debate showed no clear frontrunner here. The Democrats are finally starting to go after each other, and most Iowans still don't have their minds made up. But we're not going to talk about the horse race now. Instead, we're focusing on what's really going to matter on caucus night. What actually happens in those libraries, church basements, and cafeterias on February 3rd? I'm Clay Masters. I'm Kate Payne. From the newsroom of Iowa Public Radio, this is Caucus Land. There are a lot of changes to the Democrats' caucus process this year, so we're going to focus on them this episode. Of course, the Republicans will hold their own caucus on February 3rd, but they do it a little differently by voting with secret ballots. President Donald Trump doesn't face any serious competition here, so it'll probably be an early night for the Republicans. So back to the Democrats. For the first time, there will be a paper record of every single caucus-goer's choices. And there will be fewer rounds for Iowans to show their support. And with the caucuses bearing down, many of those likely to caucus are still trying to figure out who to back. Me, personally, I'm still undecided. I I think we have a lot of strong candidates. I think the truth is we have a lot of very thoughtful, competitive people. I started putting them in order the other day, but I want to make sure my order is the way I want it. Every cycle, the caucuses confuse outsiders and some insiders. It's a big thing to ask somebody to run a meeting with seven or 800 people. It's not an easy job. This year, there's a slate of changes that could make it even harder to understand. Oh, geez. There's all kinds of things that can go wrong. We'll get some help from somebody who loves working with the caucus process. Plus, conversations with two of the Democrats running for president, former Vice President Joe Biden and billionaire businessman Tom Steyer. Caucus Land is sponsored by Cornell College and by Gravitate Coworking providing flexible workspace for freelancers, remote workers, teams, or anyone sending emails from a couch or a coffee shop, including those in Iowa for the caucuses, with premier co-working spaces in downtown Des Moines and Historic Valley Junction. Learn more at gravitatecoworking.com. It's Caucus Land from Iowa Public Radio. Every four years, people basically have to relearn how the Iowa caucuses even work. Not to beat a dead horse here, but remember, this isn't voting. People are showing up with their neighbors in high school gyms and church basements. They're actually standing in the corner of the candidate they support. In some of these precincts, there's hundreds of people, and they're arguing and bartering, and then they're all counted up, and the totals are run through this mathematical formula. And there's all these rules, and it's confusing. Sometimes I don't get it. Some of the people in charge of these precincts can get it mixed up, too. To do this math is just insane. The, the, the flowchart is, it boggles the mind. That's John Green, who'll be running a caucus in the city of Lone Tree. It's about 17 miles from Iowa City. Yeah, I'm, uh, let's say, a wee bit concerned. Uh, 
it's like Rube Goldberg comes along and he looks at the Iowa caucus and he's like, ooh, wow. So we want to give you permission to be a little confused. We're going to get through this, but to help you understand, we went to one of the best people to explain it. Judy Downs. She's the executive director for the Polk County Democrats. Polk County is home to Des Moines, the state's largest city, and she has a lot of experience training people to run these things. So we're going to jump right in. This training, when we first started doing it, was two hours long. Um, This is the 22nd caucus training that I facilitated, so I'm going to get you out of here in 90 minutes. (laughs) But I will stick around if you have any questions or need connection with resources. I'm here to help. Eight people who will be running the caucuses on February 3rd are sitting around a table listening to Downs at the Polk County Democrats headquarters. Even people who have been doing this for decades are needing a refresher because there are some new rules this year. After 2016, there were some close calls. Some of these precincts were decided by a coin toss. There were some hard feelings from supporters of Senator Bernie Sanders, who narrowly lost the caucuses. And there was no way for the party to do a recount. Downs has to remind everyone at the table why there are changes. After 2016, the DNC said, if you want to keep the caucuses, you need to figure out a way to do a recount. Here are the three big changes to the process. The first one, presidential preference cards. Party leaders will tell you these are not ballots, but the DNC said Iowa had to have a paper record of what happens in all of these 1,600 precincts. So caucus goers will fill out these cards. And apart from having, like, cameras recording an entire caucus, there's no way to do a recount except having some sort of paper representation of people's preferences. Yeah, so a note to caucus goers, don't lose it, throw it away, take it home, or like stick your gum in it. The second big change, there will only be two alignments. That's the process of caucus goers splitting off into groups for their candidates. In order to earn any delegates, candidates have to win over at least 15% of the supporters in the room. That's called viability. If a group isn't viable, those supporters can choose another candidate. In the past, there's been multiple realignments, but in 2020, there are only two. That's the second biggest change this year. In the past, the alignment period has gone on after two alignments in some cases if if groups weren't viable. This year, we'll have an initial realignment period, and after that, no more alignments. Now, in rare cases, there may actually have to be a limited third alignment, but by and large, this year, there will just be two. So for those caucus goers walking in undecided, they're going to have less time to make up their minds. And the third big change, if a group is viable in that first round, those supporters are locked in and can't realign. That includes people in the uncommitted group. Let that sink in. Caucus goers might be committed to being uncommitted at the end of the night. If you are part of a viable group in the first alignment, you are locked into that group and cannot change. In the past you could realign even if your candidate was initially viable. This year, you're locked in. This means groups that are viable on the first round. Those people can sign their preference cards, turn them in, and go home for the night instead of waiting around to get counted again. Okay, those are the changes. Now, here are the steps that will take place when Democrats caucus. And warning, it involves a lot of math. So there's some party business at the beginning and the end of the night. But when it comes to the main event, Down says the first thing is that everyone will be counted to figure out how many people candidates need to stay viable. At this point, I'm going to hand everyone a presidential preference card and I'm going to say, OK, there's 100 people in this room. I know what my threshold is and I'm going to announce 
that you need 15 people to be viable. It's important that everyone knows what that number is before the alignments start. Then Democrats split off into their groups and try to win over those undecided people in the room. Everybody gets counted again. Non-viable groups will get to pick someone else. This is where those second or third choice candidates come in. If you're in a non-viable group, get ready to get real popular real fast. Then comes the second and final alignment. And after that, it's time for caucus math. Here's the thing. Delegates to the national convention who will actually decide the nomination in Iowa, they're not awarded based on the raw number of supporters in the room. Think of it as Iowa's own version of the Electoral College. The second equation is the delegate allocation formula. This is the number of people in each preference group times the number of delegates you're electing divided by the total number of caucus attendees. What comes out the other end of that equation is the number of delegates each group actually wins based on the support in the room. When it's all done, the IDP will report out how many delegates each candidate will get at the state convention, what the party calls state delegate equivalents. Historically, that's how you technically win the Iowa caucuses. But there are many ways campaigns can measure success out of Iowa. And this year, there will be more ways than ever. In case we weren't throwing enough at you already, there's another big change for 2020. It's which numbers will be released. The Democratic Party will publish the results of that first alignment and the final one and the state delegate equivalents. So we're publishing how many people align for that candidate in the first round and align for that candidate in the second round. So if that scenario happens, let's say it happens at every precinct in the state, that we've got three viable groups, three delegates, one has double the amount, we're publishing that number. So that campaign Mm -hmm. will know that they had twice as many folks and they will publish that it will be reported on. So for the first time, we're going to know exactly how many Iowans walked in supporting each candidate. That means in 2020, campaigns will have a lot of ways they can spin Iowa. And just like with the Electoral College, if one candidate wins the most total supporters, but another candidate gets the most actual delegates, there could be a lot of questions about if the Iowa caucuses are really reflecting what voters want. There are two more things to watch out for on caucus night. In 2016, there were a couple of these satellite caucuses. These are basically locations where people can go to caucus if they can't make it to their regular precinct. This year, there are 97 of them. So snowbirds in Florida or Arizona who don't make it back to Iowa, they can caucus where they are. There are other sites at nursing homes, community centers, college campuses out of state, and there's even one in Paris. This is another one of those changes Iowa made under pressure from the DNC. It may make it easier for some of those people to participate, but it doesn't really help those people who can't spend a couple of hours on a winter weeknight at their precinct, like shift workers, people with young kids, or people who have different accessibility needs. The other thing that theoretically could make things easier on caucus night is precinct chairs will be able to do that caucus math and report the results on a smartphone app. There are major cybersecurity concerns with this, especially in the wake of 2016 when cyber attacks played a major role in Russian interference in U.S. elections. But the Democrats say they're confident the system is secure and they'll have a backup for reporting results. So... When you take it all in, there are a lot of changes to the caucuses this year. And there's a lot of pressure on Iowa. People inside and outside of the state are asking whether Iowa should stay first or whether it should move towards a primary. 
any problems on caucus night could add fuel to the fire. As one local official put it to me, failure is not an option. So people like Judy Downs are doing everything they can to drill these changes into the heads of volunteers leading the caucuses. We're going to do it together, and you can fill out. Just let me know if something is very confusing. She even has them take a quiz at the end of the training. Realignment is available to members in viable and non-viable groups, true or false? False. Love it. Is this following order correct? You determine and announce viability, first alignment, determine which groups are viable, non-viable, second alignment, allocate delegates. Yes. Yay. A viable preference group has at least how many of the total caucus attendees? 15%. 15%. How many official candidates? Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, conversations with former Vice President Joe Biden and billionaire Tom Steyer. Caucus Land is sponsored by Gravitate Coworking and by Cornell College in Mount Vernon, Iowa where students get a first-in-the-nation, hands-on experience with the political process every election cycle. Explore interdisciplinary learning at cornellcollege.edu. Are you enjoying this episode of Caucus Land? Find more stories about the candidates and learn about their positions on the issues by going online to iowapublicradio.org slash 2020. When the Iowa caucuses are over, so is Caucus Land, but don't worry. We have another political podcast. It's called Under the Golden Dome. This is a weekly podcast about the Iowa legislature. Take a look inside Iowa politics and subscribe to Under the Golden Dome wherever you listen to podcasts. Your support makes Caucus Land possible. Take a few minutes and donate to IPR. Whether it's $5, $10 or more, your gift is an investment in high-quality journalism. This is Caucus Land from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Clay Masters. I'm Kate Payne. At the beginning of 2020, former Vice President Joe Biden got the endorsement of the second youngest woman ever elected to Congress, who just happened to be from Iowa. At 29, Representative Abby Finkenauer defeated a Republican incumbent in Iowa's first congressional district in 2018. Now, Biden regularly likes to bring her on the Iowa campaign trail to introduce him, like he did in Indianola in mid-January. Finkenauer likes to tell a story about when she first met Biden. It was 2007, and she was a page for the Iowa Speaker of the House, and many of the Democrats running for president then were meeting with state lawmakers. Finkenauer's grandfather called her up and told her to make sure she went to check out Biden. I don't know this senator from Delaware. Who's this Joe Biden? I don't know who he is. And he's like, Abby, just trust me. He gets it. He understands the way that we grew up. I said, all right, all right. Well, if Papa says it, I'm going to go do it. So I will go into this room and I will hear him out. So I did. Finkenauer went on to work on Biden's 2008 presidential campaign. As Biden starts speaking at Simpson College, he did his usual campaign routine, casually walking around the podium and talking about restoring the soul of the nation. Our politics today has become so personal, so dirty, so, so divisive that it's virtually... Impossible, it seems, to get anything done. And unless we start to work together, uh, this system can't work. Our system is designed based on the notion you have to reach consensus. Unless we reach consensus under our constitutional system, all it leads to is the abuse of power, which we're seeing from this president. I sat down with Biden before his Indianola event. We were in the corner of a college dining hall. Mr. Vice President, I'm curious, you get through Iowa, you go on to become the nominee for the Democrats. How does Donald Trump not just play the same strategy he did in 2016 against Hillary Clinton, painting you as a a corrupt, longtime Washington politician? 
He does, and people know me. It doesn't work. Everybody knows where the corruption lies and lies with him. And look, uh, whomever the nominee is, he's going to lie about. And he's been doing this for six months with me. None of the punches have landed. I've come out stronger. I'm in better shape. No one's been attacked as often as I have. And so uh, I, I feel good about where we are. But no matter who the nominee is, you know Donald Trump is going to lie about. There's been no evidence of wrongdoing uh, with your son, Hunter. But at the same time, any conflict of interest, just the appearance of it, uh, can come across as conflict of interest. What do you do as a President Biden to make sure that the public interests are ahead of your personal interests and show America that? Well, they've always been ahead of my personal interest. I've never, no one's ever accused me of ever having anything other than that. But what I'm going to do because of the way Trump has turned uh, the White House into sort of a family operation is no one in my family will be at all engaged in having any office in the White House. They will, my wife will, but no one will have any office. No one will have any work for any foreign governments. No one will be engaged or foreign interest. And, uh, and so it's going to, and the reason for that is to make sure we understand what Trump has done cannot be repeated, cannot be repeated. I want to shift to something that we're hearing from caucus goers as an important issue to them, and that is some of just the inequities in communities of color. Uh, your tone has changed a lot since 1994 and the crime bill that you shepherded in. Um, but My tone hasn't changed a bit. I've had overwhelming support from communities of color more than anyone else, you guys, because you didn't know about it. And you're all surprised why I have more support than everyone else combined with community colors from the day I got in public office. So, so what do you do as a president to make sure that any inequalities in communities of color are fixed? Four or five things. Number one, I make sure that we change the way in which we turn prisons into places where you rehabilitate, not, in fact, just incarcerate. That while in prison, you learn how to read and write. You learn you have opportunities. You learn trades. Anyone who is convicted of a crime relating to a drug addiction goes not to a prison, goes to a rehabilitation center, like my crime bill called for. I make sure that we, in fact, invest in early education for Title I schools for uh, disadvantaged communities, including people of color. And so that we, they're in a position where all three, four, and five years old have preschool. I make sure that we do a whole range of things relating to just simple opportunity. There's still institutional racism in the country. That's why I got involved in, in, in politics in the first place. That's why I became a public defender and left a prestigious law firm to do that, because we, our future lies in bringing along browns and blacks into the system this time when we rebuild, we rebuild the, uh, the, uh, the middle class. And it's, it's a great opportunity. Are, are those programs that Congress has to be a part of, or, or how do you move forward with that? There's three things. One, Congress has to be part of a number of them, but also a significant part of it is just about setting the tone making sure that we understand my administration is going to look like the country. It's going to reflect what the country looks like. And it's going to be engaged in ways that we demonstrate to the communities of color in particular that, that we are going to protect their interest and provide opportunities. And a lot of it does require legislation, but I'm confident the country is ready. And because, look, uh, I just spoke to the Black Baptist Convention, and, uh, um, you know, uh, they, uh, they, 
know and the rest of the public knows how badly this president has prejudiced the circumstance for people of color, Muslims, people of, of, of any any difference at all how this president has preyed upon separating us in ways that are not consistent with who we are. That's why from the very beginning, from the very beginning, I have not come off message, which I was told that, you know, a, a lot of, not you personally, but a lot of press said, well, what's he talking about? And we have to restore the soul of the country. And once this guy, you know, I, I'll conclude with this. When I was a kid, people didn't realize how bad race relations were until they saw Bull Connor using those fire hoses, ripping literally the skin off of people's backs, having German Shepherd dogs, and I have two of them, German Shepherd dogs, singing them and straining the leash, ripping the clothes off of women who, black women who just come from church. What has happened again, we're at another inflection point in America. People have observed, good, decent, honorable people, just how badly this president has treated people of color, what are the consequences for them. So we have enormous opportunity to bring people along this time. And finally, looking at trade, uh, USMCA, phase one of the China deal has been getting a lot of bipartisan uh, support here in Iowa. How would you have done things differently? Well, I, first of all, I, w I wouldn't have started a trade war with China in the, in the way in which it was started. Look, all... The, and it's good, but all the Iowa farmers are going to do is get back to where they were when we left office. And we will have spent more money to make them, allowing them to survive, than we spent on the entire bailout of the automobile industry. And what's happening in addition to that? In addition to that, you see that we're not spending the time and energy to focus on China where they're really hurting us, on stealing intellectual secrets, making sure that we're in a position where they're stealing notions that are that opportunities that exist for Americans across the board. And uh, you see what's happening even with the way in which trade with Cuba and other places. I mean, the bottom line is farmers are still worse off than when uh, than when Trump started this war. Mr. Vice President, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> In January 2019, billionaire and Democratic donor Tom Steyer held a press conference in Des Moines and told reporters he would not run for president. He said it'd be better to spend his time and money on making the case to impeach President Trump. He spent millions of his own money on the need to impeach Super PAC. But in the summer of 2019, he changed his mind and said he would run for the nomination, largely funding his own campaign. Fast forward to January 2020, and Steyer was in Council Bluffs on the opening day of the impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate. You know, people say to me, we love you, are you viable? And my answer is, my God, we've done nothing but go up in numbers since I got into this race and I got into this race late. So, in fact, if you look at those four early states, the last poll I saw had me on an average of 15 percent and in third place. So this is doable. Steyer told the crowd of about 30 the main reason he changed his mind and got into the race was because he felt none of the candidates were talking strongly enough about climate change. Let me say this. If it's not your number one priority, I don't believe it's getting done. I Seriously. And I know that the facts on the ground are it has to be our number one priority. I talked with him before his Council Bluffs event at his hotel. It happened to be on the 10-year anniversary of the Citizens United Supreme Court decision that basically says corporations can spend unlimited amounts of money in politics. I started by asking him what he says to the critics who say he's buying his way onto the debate stage. The, the only thing that people respond to is actually a message. And 
you know, I think I'm saying, I just so told you, I, I'm doing this completely different for re saying different things from every single other person. And I've spent 10 years basically putting together coalitions of ordinary citizens to take on corporations. So my message is completely different. My background is completely different. And if you go and look at my history, you know this, that in fact, when I've seen a problem in America over the last decade plus, I've gone after it as hard as I can in terms of time and energy and money. And if you look at the need to impeach movement, there was something really wrong, the most corrupt president in American history. So I tried to organize people to, to get a voice for the American people to point out we need to protect the country. That's why I'm running for president. If that's the worst thing you ever can say, that I saw a huge problem in the United States of America and tried to solve it with everything I had, including money, okay? Should Citizens United be overturned? Absolutely. Look, Citizens United basically says that corporations are people. We all know corporations aren't people. You know, I, I, there's an old joke about it. I'll believe a corporation is a person when Texas puts one to death. No, it, corporations aren't people, and so to treat them as having the same rights as American citizens is ridiculous. It's a huge mistake, and if you, it's a, the Supreme Court has a history of making gigantic mistakes that go on with incredible bad results for long periods of time. If you go back through American history, there's a book that actually chronicles this. They were right there making mistake after mistake after mistake, you know, through all slavery and right up. They've made some disastrous decisions, and honestly, Citizens United is a disastrous mistake. You've said, I think it's $100 million is how much you're set to spend on your own campaign. Why not spend that on down-ballot races, uh, Senate congressional races? Why, why focus on your campaign? Well, Clay, as you know, I started one of the biggest grassroots organizations in the United States, Next Gen America. I think we're on 19 campuses in Iowa, and we've been here for seven or eight years. I've been doing, I've built this up. We've also, together with our partners in the labor movement, NextGen has knocked on 25 million doors in the last two election cycles. So actually I am doing all that. All the things that people say I should be doing, I've been doing for years. So I, I don't really get the point. Of, of course I'm gonna do that because I'm all in to make the changes that have to happen in this society. You had said uh, at one point that uh, you would not, as president, hesitate to use emergency powers of the presidency to protect American public from the climate crisis, just as you would use those powers to protect the country from a hostile military invasion. What does that mean? It means I declare a state of emergency on day one, because it is a state of emergency, and I would use the emergency powers of the presidency to do things like to put in place a program during which we'd move to clean energy to put in place a program to, during which we'd get buildings that were much more energy efficient, to put in place a program where we'd change the kind of cars we produced over time. It, we have to get going. You know, this is, there are two different time schedules going on, Clay. One is dictated by Mother Nature. She's not taking, you know, as I like to say, we can't go in and ask for an extension on the paper. In fact, we have to deliver the paper the day it's due. It's physics. And then there's the political time schedule, and the two are not matching up. And what I'm trying to do is make the two match up, to actually have us respond to a crisis in the time when we have to respond to it. But I've also been working on this for long enough to know we can do it, we have the technology to do it, and we can do it in a way that makes us richer and healthier. So let's get on with it. There's no one else who's making this their number one priority. And if it's not your number one priority, I don't believe it's going to get done. 
We're in southwest Iowa right now. Uh, as you know, some pretty devastating flooding happened here uh, in 2019. Does a climate plan of yours mean that farmland in this part of the state of Iowa would be taken out of production if it's constantly being flooded and, and you know, costs are going to that when they could be going somewhere else from the federal, federal government? No. In fact, my rural plan and my climate plan include the important idea that the federal government is going to go to farmers, specifically in Iowa but across the country, and partner with them in figuring out how to sequester carbon. Those are fancy words. What we really mean is, how are we gonna go and plant things that will take carbon out of the air and put it in the ground? Farmers know that better than anyone else. The Iowa farmers have been innovating for over 100 years and leading the world. But they're gonna get paid for this. So in fact, this is gonna be, I understand how tough farming, the farm economy has been, really tough. And I've been to Council Bluffs before, and I've gone and talked to people who got flooded out and talked about how many floods they've had. No, in fact, the goal, a, a, a big part of the solution to this will be working with farmers in rural America to figure out how to solve it together and then paying them for their service. But how do you innovate on farmland if it's getting flooded out and farmers are activating and using uh, crop insurance every couple of years? Look, if you actually go back, and I'm sure you have, and talk about what happened in 2019, there's a huge element of climate to it, no question about it. There was also a lot of discussion about what went wrong in terms of the Army Corps. And so it wasn't as if this didn't, it was something that was inevitable in terms of the result. What was true is we had a 100-year flood. What was also true is that we weren't prepared for it in the way we could have been and should have been. And I think everybody, uh, around Council Bluffs said the exact same thing to me. So from my standpoint, yeah, we're going to have to be prepared. We're going to have to protect Americans, but also we're going to have to work with Americans and pay them for coming up with the solutions that are going to solve this crisis for the rest of the country and the rest of the world. Tom Steyer, thank you. Clay, it's nice to see you again. Since our last episode, we saw New Jersey Senator Cory Booker drop out of the race. Booker built a strong campaign in Iowa and had the backing of a lot of state lawmakers, but he just never caught on. Author Marianne Williamson also dropped out. And as we record this, the Iowa caucuses are now just a little more than a week away. Caucus Land is produced by me, Clay Masters, Kate Payne, and John Pemble. Our music was composed by Garrett Schmid and performed by Garrett and Aaron James. We also get help from our digital team, Lindsay Moon and Matt Searin. Our news director is Michael Leland. Our executive producer is Katherine Perkins. Subscribe to Caucus Land wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and share the show. Caucus Land is a production of Iowa Public Radio.